During the worship, it appears to me that this is the place where Jesus Christ is pleased to dwell. That's just from an outsider looking in. It seems like Jesus Christ would be pleased to dwell here. The worship was wonderful. If you have a Bible, please open it up. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be going through that chapter. It is a chapter where the Abrahamic covenant is discussed. And some of you may be going, oh boy, he's going to go theological on us. I'm not. I'm not. When I was in seminary, I started seminary when I was 43 years old. And it was, uh, let's just say it took all of my attentions to make sure I could go through that process. It's rather rigorous. And one of the papers that we had to do was write the elements of the Abrahamic Covenant. So you'd have the, the book of Genesis, and you start reading the book of Genesis, and you go, really? I mean, really? It's got to be in here someplace. Well, I can save you a lot of time. I'm going to be giving you the elements of the Abrahamic Covenant, and then we're going to be going through this ceremony uh, that, that is, is written about in Genesis 15. The Abrahamic Covenant is three parts. Abraham is going to inherit the land, or the Jews are going to inherit the land. There's going to be numerous descendants, and all nations will be blessed because of Abraham. There you got it. That's the sum total of the Abrahamic Covenant. They're going to inherit the land or possess the land. There's going to be numerous descendants, and all nations are going to be blessed. And you could also say this, all nations are going to be blessed, is Jesus Christ is going to come through the line of Abraham. Okay, now you got it. We're going to be starting to read Genesis 15. I'm going to read the pertinent parts of it in its entirety, and then we'll stop and we'll go through and we'll discuss it a little bit further. Uh, This is God's word. Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Go to verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And then it goes on for some other stuff that we're not going to be discussing today. This is God's word. Before we start, let's pray. Father, these are your words meant for our edification, for our good but they're also to bring glory and honor to you. So we want to do this this morning. We want you to be the centerpiece. You want to be the focal point of what we talk about. So may these words be a blessing to us, but they may they bring glory and honor to you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen.
Starting at the very beginning of chapter 15, it says, after this, after what? Well, Abram had just rescued Lot. There was a war that had went on in chapter 14. And he goes on, he says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. What he's saying there is, is Abram, I'm going to be everything you need. I'm going to be your refuge. I'm going to be your protector. We would say, I'm going to be your prize money. I am going to be everything that you need. And what does Abram say? Well, he doesn't say what you and I would say. We need to look at this entire passage through the eyes of a Jew, not through the eyes of a Westerner. If God were to somehow come to you and say, I will be your very great reward, probably the majority of you would either be silent in gratitude, or you'd say, well, thanks. And that'd be it. Not a Jew. A Jew has a far, they have reverence, but it's different than a Westerner. What Abram basically said is, where's my kids? You said I was going to have kids. You're, I'm going to be your great reward. That's fine, God. But where's my kids? You told me I was going to have kids. Now, you and I would kind of go, well, that's a little bit bold. That's kind of uh, disrespectful, not in the eyes of a Jew. That is called chutzpah in the eyes of a Jew. And chutzpah is having a persistent, a will-not-quit, will-not-let-go, will-not-give-up, attitude that I'm going to cling on to God's promises and I am going to believe what he says no matter what. And previous to this chapter, God had promised Abram kids. She says, I'm going to be your very great reward, Abram. He says, that's fine. Where's my kids? You promised me I was going to have kids. Where are my kids? So God goes on. He says, come on outside. I'll show you where your kids are. He says, look up into the sky. And their stars are in the sky. They're innumerable. He answered that question. Now, many of you have probably heard of the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof was a musical that depicted in the early 20th century a Jewish family living in Russia, having three girls, and it depicts the trials and tribulations of raising these three girls and getting them married off. And the father, named Tevya, he has that chutzpah type of attitude towards God, who he refers to as his father. And he, he talks to him just like his father. Here's one. He says, Tevya says something to the effect that he knows God is sovereign, and therefore his mule had to come up lame, but it didn't have to be on Friday. Couldn't it have been on Saturday or Sunday? Another one, Tevya says, sometimes I think when things get too quiet up there, you say to yourself, what kind of mischief can I play on my friend Tevya? He literally looks at God like his father. A Westerner would never do this. One other one, he says, Tevya says, it may sound like I'm complaining, but I'm not. After all, with your help, I'm starving to death. Chutzpah, it's an intense, persistent, will-not-quit, will-not-give-up attitude. The New Testament gives us a couple examples of chutzpah. 
I have one right here, as a matter of fact. It is with a Canaanite woman. It says, leaving this place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Chutzpah, an intense, persistent, will not quit, will not let go attitude of faith in, what, in the promises of God. So, Abram has this comment, where's my kids? God brings him outside, shows him the stars of the sky. Then there's a second event that happens. If we look at verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. You and I would probably say, well, thanks. I appreciate that. But not a Jew. Abram says, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Basically, he says, prove it. You're going to give me all this land? Prove it. At the time that this was said, bear in mind that Abram was living in a tent and he didn't own enough property to bury his wife. He owned nothing. And God is saying, oh, by the way, you're going to get all this land that's around here. And Abram says, basically, prove it. So God says to Abraham, Go out and bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So, Abram does. Now, this is, this is called a blood ceremony or a blood path. It is, it is literally called cutting a covenant. On what is a covenant? Theologically, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement that brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. God is the one who ratifies or makes official the covenant. And we're going to discuss this in fuller detail as we go along. So God says to Abram, go get me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, and a dove. And by the way, these five objects are used throughout the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. Now, I could see God saying that to us, and we would scurry out, and we'd go wherever, and we would get the animals, and after we got these objects, what would we do? We would say, okay, I got them, now what? Abram doesn't say that. He knows what he's supposed to do, and he gets the animals, he slaughters the animals, takes the two birds and puts them in a line, so he has half of the animal here, he has half of the animal here, and the blood flows in between. 
It's called a blood path or a blood ceremony, and you need to understand this from the eyes of a Jew. There are no words being spoken. It is all a picture. It's all a picture, and it has enormous meaning. The greater party, which would be God, states what he will do and what you will do. God says, I will give you the land, I will give you numerous descendants, and all people will be blessed through you. What does Abram need to do? Abram needs to be perfect. And we know that from Genesis 17, uh, verse 2. I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram is called upon to be perfect, or some of your translations say, blameless. The lesser party, Abram, he can accept the terms of the covenant or he can decline, whichever way he wants to do it. So, Abram puts this all together, and we'll hold that right there, just for a second. I'm going to leave that information right there, and then I'm going to go over here. In remote areas of the Middle East, even to this day, I am told that they use this type of a ceremony or blood covenant for marriages. It's all a picture, no words are spoken, and I'm going to use myself and my wife Sally to, to illustrate what this is like. I would be, for the, for the purposes of the marriage, the greater party. The lesser party, Sally's dad, would provide an animal. The animal is slaughtered, the blood is put in a small pool. My dad would take off his sandals, would walk over and would stomp in the blood. And when he's stomping in the blood, he is saying, I promise my son will be a good father, a good husband, a good provider. He'll be honest, things of this nature. And if my son is not those things, you can do to me what you have done to this animal. Then my wife's father not my wife yet, but her father would take his sandals off and he would stomp in the same blood and he would be saying at the same time, if my daughter is not a virgin, a good mother, a good uh, wife, you can do to me what is done to this animal. And it has happened that they would find an animal slain in the bottom of a wadi, which is a dried out riverbed, and the father, one of the father's throats were cut, and there was footprints in the blood, meaning their son or their daughter did not hold up their end of the covenant, and they died for it. Going back to the Genesis 15 passage, it says in verse 12, And the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. That is a Hebrew way of saying, Abram was scared to death. He was absolutely petrified, because Abram knew, if I put so much as my toe into that blood, I'm a dead man. Because I'll never be perfect. I will never be blameless. My descendants will never be perfect. I'll never be blameless. So if I put my toe in that, it's over. 
Furthermore, if I don't walk the blood path, I'll never have the land, the descendants, and the Messiah will not come through my, my line. So he is scared to death, and it was at this point that the Lord intervenes and takes all the responsibility and the burden of the covenant on himself. And we see the symbolically the two objects going through the blood path in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. We know the smoking fire pot represents the Lord. We know that because the greater party always goes first. And besides that, smoke always represents the presence of the Lord. Give you a few examples. <clears throat> when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they all went to Mount Sinai and they're around Mount Sinai, there was a time when the mountain was engulfed in smoke, signifying, representing the presence of the Lord. Also, when the tabernacle was built, when Solomon's temple was built, when it was dedicated, the presence of the Lord was signified by those, those dwellings being filled with smoke. We have also the Israelites being led through the wilderness by a cloud of smoke. Okay? All those are representative of God. The second thing that went through, symbol that went through, was a blazing torch. And fire never, ever represents a human. Ever. It always represents God. And we see that in numerous places. When Moses encountered the Lord, it was with a burning bush. Elijah was taken to heaven with a chariot of fire. Uh, a pillar of fire guided the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness and the Holy Spirit was representative of fire when tongues of fire were on the people in Acts chapter 2. So we go on. There's, there's many others, but fire is always representative of God. So they walk, they walk in, they stand in, they take the place of Abraham walking through. So here's the deal. I'm going to read this. God is telling Abram, if you sin, if you're not perfect, if your descendants are not blameless, if you break the covenant in any way, you may do this to me. Get this. It was then that God sentenced himself, his son, to die. Can you imagine Jesus in heaven watching God the Father make this covenant with Abraham with Abram, knowing that it will cost the life of Jesus. Right then, the, the death of Jesus was sealed because he had made this covenant knowing full well that he was going to be taking the repercussions for anything that happened. The Lord is going to give Abram the land, numerous descendants, and he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And in addition, God will pay the price whether Abraham or his descendants or anybody violates the covenant. Any way you look at it, it's all on God. So, we've talked about this, and now I want to take this package and leave it right here. 
And I'm going to start continuing on and say, what did this look like as this went through Scripture till we get to the New Testament? First of all, the Old Testament sacrifices, as I said earlier, use these five animals over and over again. In fact, God was so concerned about the sacrificial system that it is talked about in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's talked about specifically what is to be done, how it is to be carried out. And every time an animal was slain and the blood was thrown against the altar, a good Jew would go, God, you promised to forgive me of my sins. Please keep your promise. Please remember your promise. So the, the essence, at least in part, the essence of the sacrificial system was at 9 o'clock in the morning, or they called it between the morning or mid-morning, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, between the evenings, 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, there was a sacrifice. Every day. I don't care if it was the Sabbath, 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock. If it was raining, you're going to get cold. If it's snowing, you're going to get colder. If it is hot, it was always hot. Nine o'clock and three o'clock, I want a sacrifice. If it's a holiday, especially a holiday, you're going to offer a sacrifice at nine o'clock and at three o'clock. And when the, when, the, when the sacrificial system started, it was with the tabernacle, with Moses. Very simple, some could say simplistic. And then it progressed to Solomon's temple. And then we went way down the way, way over here, we had the restored or the reconstructed temple of Herod. Way back there with the tabernacle, it was a pretty simple system. By the time it got to the days of Jesus, it was far more complex. They'd added a lot of stuff. And in fact, during the days of Jesus, it took three people to do the sacrifice at 9 o'clock and at 3 o'clock. The first person was a priest who was next to the altar and had the knife on the throat of either the goat the heifer, or the ram. They'd have the knife, and they're ready. The second priest would be in the highest part of the temple. It was called the pinnacle. And they were at the highest part of the temple, and they were up there, and they had what was called a shofar, or a large a horn that they would blow. The third person was in the temple square, and they had either an hourglass or a sundial, depending on the cloud cover. And as the time approached either 9 o'clock or 3 o'clock, the person in the temple would signal the guy in the pinnacle. The guy in the pinnacle would blow the horn. The guy at the, sacrifice, at the sacrifice would cut the throat of the animal, and another animal had been killed. God, please remember to forgive us of our sins. Okay? When that animal was slain, the people in Jerusalem would pause for a moment and go, there's been another sacrifice. Blood has been spilt. So, let's look at one of those days. It was a Passover. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, has estimated there were some two million Jews in Jerusalem at this time. It's about five minutes to three. Outside of the front gate at Jerusalem, in an abandoned stone quarry, are three men hanging on a cross, and it looks like the center guy's dead. The time goes, it hits 3 o'clock, 
the person in the temple square, signals to the priest in the pinnacle. He blows the horn, and suddenly the guy in the center raises his head and shouts with a loud voice, It is finished! And I don't believe Jesus said it was finished just because his life has ended or that his suffering was over. I believe Jesus was saying, it's all finished. 1,800 years ago, my father promised that my blood would be shed, and I've done it. Today, my blood was shed, and I kept the promise that was to Abram way, way a long time ago, and here I am today. It was at that time, all of this came together in a picture. There are no words to adequately describe the power of the pitcher of the blood of Almighty God dripping into the dust just like he promised to pay for my sins. To think that Jesus was nailed on the cross at 9 o'clock and he died at 3 o'clock should move us to the core of our soul. He was the ultimate sacrificial lamb that fulfilled the prophecy, the promises, and the covenants way back in Genesis. And the reason I love preaching on this particular passage is it sets the foundation and the groundwork for the entire redemptive story all the way through Revelation. It starts right here in Genesis 15, just as clear as can be, is Jesus says, I will die for the sins of the people, and I will keep my covenant to Abraham as well. And he did, graphically. God is always, he is always the one that keeps his promises, and God is always the one that is seeking out sinners. For example, when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus, or you could say, God goes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? When Noah was in a culture that was compromising, it was God who went down and said, I will save you and your family. When we have Abram, he's going to be calling a chosen people out for himself. What does God do? He goes to Abram, he calls them out of, the, out of Ur of Chaldees, and he sets apart a people as his own. You can also see the, the parables in the New Testament where you have the, the picture of the prodigal son coming home and the father is running down what we would know as a driveway to hug his son who essentially has come back from the dead. It's a depiction of Jesus Christ welcoming back a sinner who has seen the error of his way and comes back to the father. Or you could take the one where the the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find the one lost sheep. God will always keep his promise. He will always look for that sinner. He will always wait for you to come back. He will never default on a promise, ever. So the challenge for us, resolve to grow strong in your faith. Resolve to flee from unbelief. Resolve to believe the promises of God. I don't know what some of you are going through in this congregation. I really don't. But I do know that there are other people that I deal with, and I can name off four right now, that every day they are dealing with cancer. And for some of them, their prognosis does not look very good. 
It does not look very, very hopeful, humanly speaking. It is those people that when they are faced with a, a serious issue in their life can sit back and they have chutzpah, that persistent, I will not quit, I will not let go, confidence in God's promises. And I'll tell you, when the, that's what I call when the rubber meets the road or when they're circling the drain, is when those people that have Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, they latch on and they don't let go. And that is what I would challenge you with today, is you are undoubtedly going through a variety of issues, none of which I am, I am aware of. But God is aware of those. And I would want you to leave here today with a persistent faith that will not let go. You are going to latch on to what God says, and you're going to live a life that shows that you believe he's your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray with me. Father, we thank you for the clarity with which your word brings us the assurance of your promises. Father, may we be a light in a dark world. May we realize that people are looking at us and they may, that we may be the only Jesus they ever see. So may they look at us and there be a sweet aroma that indeed we are a child of the King and there's something different about us. So we thank you for your word. We pray that your, your name would have been lifted up and glorified. In Christ's name, amen.